in so many ways, um, the Dharma is really about uh, the heart. It's a, a language that ultimately um, brings us into or speaks to the heart, goes through the mind a lot. and um, There's a lot of constructs within the Buddhist axiom that frames the Dharma and uh, gives us um, a map, a very brilliant map that we can orientate within, but it has to ultimately lead back into, into, the, into the jitta or the heart. And uh, Ajahn Chah said that ultimately the Dharma is uh, the language of feeling and experience. It's what we feel and what we experience. We, we feel and experience dukkha or suffering or struggle and we feel and experience peace or the release from that dukkha. And that's, uh, you know, and sometimes people would go to him and say, what is nibbana? And he would say, what's a banana? He said, <laughs> you know, you can look at a banana and write a thesis about it, but you have to peel it and eat it to know what its taste is. And the important thing is to know the taste of peace. This is really where all of these um, teachings and this practice that is a, quite a challenging practice sometimes, although very nourishing and supporting, supportive other times, but where this is, uh, leads us to inward, into, into the depth of the jitta or the heart, um, and where we can know directly that uh, there is a stream underneath all the phenomena of our experience, all the reactions we go through, all the comings and goings, that is profoundly peaceful. And we lose touch with that, of course, because we're so much pulled up into the activity and reactivity of, of the mind and the world, especially now, which is uh, such an overwhelming context that we're living within, um, our planetary emergency and profound crisis it's very impactful. Um, but still, even within the midst of great challenge, that uh, this taste of the peaceful, the taste of the, that which isn't shaped and conditioned and reactive is always present, always here. For us to be, uh, to be, uh, to, to be nourished by, to be filled by, to touch into, to know directly. Great Tibetan master Dilgo Kense said, maintain the state of simplicity. If you encounter happiness, success, prosperity, or other favorable circumstances, consider them as dreams, illusions, and do not get attached to them. If you are stricken by illness, deprivation, or other physical and mental trials, do not let yourself be discouraged, but rekindle your compassion and generate the wish that through your suffering, the suffering of others may be exhausted. Whatever circumstances arise, do not plunge into either elation or misery, but stay free and comfortable 
in unshakable serenity. And in so many ways that speaks to the same realization of, uh, of the, the, the innate peacefulness of the, of the heart, of the innate peace in every moment that we miss when we're so busy looking too far for something else that we haven't yet got or that we haven't yet um, experienced. So it's a subtle realization to keep training our attention to come back from that running out into the seeking of the mind, looking here and there to actually come back to touch into this heart. It's difficult because the heart is often very turbulent and very reactive and very layered with the, with the, with the, uh, the stories and the, the, you know, the, the old ways that we understand ourselves and see the world that have that sort of run through these these sort of patterns and narratives that run through the mind, touching the heart, shaped in shaping our experience in every moment. So to be able to see through that uh, is um, is an ongoing practice. So the Buddha said that uh, this practice, the application of the practice in and of itself, breaks up that which obstructs our clear seeing. That uh, that this this activity of the path, or the, the the way of practice, is in and of itself breaks up obstruction. And then the path of realization, or the fruit, not the path, but the fruit of that path, the fruit of that realization, this taste of peace, arises according to the Dharma, according to its own law. It's not something that we can create or, or, or sort of willfully kind of capture, but it's an arising on, or an organic folding according to its own nature. But what we can do is quicken that realization, quicken that fruit of the path through applying the activity of the path. So this is very much what we do when we come together in a group like this, when we sit for a while, when we apply the uh, teachings of meditation, when we contemplate our experience, when we um, just focus for a while, stop running around. This path activity And in that we can have faith and we can have trust. If we think about it too much, if we start to think, oh, this big way of awakening and these big words and these big stories we've heard, you know, we think about the masters and their attainments, then it all feels a little bit overwhelming and maybe hard to realize. Or if we think about ourselves, often we think of, see it through a, through a, see ourselves through a more diminished lens. You know, I, I'm not good enough, or I'm not sure if I can do this, or we just get distracted and caught up. But if we can trust that a moment of path activity, a moment of mindfully being here, being with our breath, focusing, softening, practicing, and opening into loving kindness, discerning, really inquiring what's happening now. You know, what I think is happening is one thing. What I'm assuming is happening, what I'm caught up in, what I'm reacting to, but what is actually the experience here and now, direct experience of what is felt, what is sensed, um, what is seen, what is heard. And in that way, this, this moment 
by moment inquiry, where is suffering, where am I clinging, where am I generating unnecessary dukkha, and where can I let go, where can I release from that. So this moments of inquiry, moments of path activity is something that we can actually do. And in many ways that is what, all is, what is required of us, to do that path activity in every moment, not to make a huge project of it, and a big, uh, you know, I've got lifetimes, I've got to do this in so many years, and then if I go on this retreat and that retreat, and all of that is very good, but if we miss the moment of the application of the path activity, then we, we've still got to, it's still something we haven't got, you know, haven't, haven't understood. We're still in that accumulating mind looking for something that will bring about the result that we think that we need, that we haven't got yet, but actually that result is always present here and now, that peace. It's not anywhere else, it never has been. And so this is what the, the Buddha taught, this taste of the Dharma, the living Dharma, he said it's akaliko, it's outside of time, epasiko, inviting us here and now, drawing us inward. It's like a, a, an iron filing to a, mag, a magnet that we are being actually drawn inwards ever by this underlying stream of awakening and peace and insight. But we just get distracted. So it's never that far, the nearest and the most intimate. So in the teaching frames that can really uh, align us into that realization, one piece that I'd like to draw out tonight is the structure, one of the structures where the Buddha talks about these different aspects of applying or positioning ourselves within the path. He talks about the first two, these parameters or spiritual powers, spiritual perfections, these first two of generosity and ethical restraint, dana, sila. We may have heard a lot about those. These are really ways of bringing the sense of self, our everyday self, into alignment with two very important principles. This energy of generosity, flow, offering, which really leads us into a deep understanding that we don't really own anything, but that we have sort of a temporary arrangement of things that we are responsible for or that come into our life. And that from that we can share rather than seeing everything as a business transaction, you know, that I have this and I'll give that little piece to you, we can just allow things to flow through us in the same way as the Dharma flows freely. No one owns it. It's not mine to capture and own, but it's, you know, as the Buddha said, I share with an open hand. Things are offered freely. And Dharma is just another word for nature, in the same way as nature offers freely. We try and control and extract and plunder, and we know where that's gotten us to. But actually, nature is Dharma. Dharma is nature, and it's offered to us. Each breath is offered to us. This is the spirit and understanding of Dharma that we can apply to everything. And as we're shaped in that, something opens in the heart. Some release happens, some flow happens, some miracle happens in our life. We're not holding so tightly. 
And then the, the opposite of that, the restraint. Well, the, some things we generously share, some things, some energies we restrain because ultimately or succinctly that Sila is about not harming. We don't share this piece of our energy because it's harmful. We work with it, we restrain. So these two are the foundations in a way generating a, an internal sense of being and self that is uh, that is begins to lessen the um, lessen a sense of discordance and um, harm and um, increase a sense of well-being in our lives and upon that then this third parami which like to really, which is so important to to just mention in this space, which is the dana sila. The third one is nikama, which means to usually is translated as renunciation, or, or relinquishment, or letting go, or the um, non-grasping of the mind, in a more subtle way of understanding that, because it's it's such a important value for us in our daily life is such a helpful orientation to realize and remember there's this great spiritual power this great path activity that we can cultivate and develop but it's also really important for us on our earth at this moment to really consider this principle and it goes against the count the counterintuitive to the feeling of what will bring us happiness often the feeling is in the and the in the conditioning that we receive, the messaging that we receive from our culture and from our advertising is that you need more and more and more for happiness and fulfillment and peace. And we know how that works and we know how insidious and powerful and overwhelming that is and that how that uh, can um, undermine and sabotage a sense of contentment and well-being and enoughness is, you know, it's always the message: "You're not enough. It's not enough." Whereas this, this uh, nekama, renunciation, relinquishment, works against that and allows us to actually have moments, or a whole life and whole way of being, that realise there is enough. Actually, I don't really need that extra thing. I don't have to run after that. Perhaps I don't even need this experience that I'm craving. And in some ways it's a natural, when we contemplate the Dharma, there's a natural release and non-grasping and return to peace. But it's also a practice. It doesn't come also that naturally to us because the natural movement is, is to hold on. So we have to train the mind and keep contemplating this theme to counteract that grasping of the mind. The word, actually interestingly enough, the Sanskrit word, Nikamata has a different flavor to it. It literally means to go forth from or to leave behind. So there's a feeling of freedom in renunciation when you look at it like that. It means that I don't have to be held by uh, these material possessions in the way that I'm holding them. It's not to say we shouldn't have material possessions, but the particular way that I'm obsessed around them or holding on to them or these, you know, the way that I want to hold my, you know, the needs that I have in a certain way that manipulate people in emotional, in our emotional realm and in our relational field, 
or the way that I feel I've got to grab this thing first before someone else gets it. And so, so this sort of orientation when we're in that mode it comes from a lot of fear and a lot of sense of lack. And that's, that's, that's very in, wired into our nervous systems in a, a very, you know, very strong way. But so to, to actually feel what a moment of letting things be and not having to move into relationship from that grasping and me first, uh, my idea, my view, my opinion, my way, my, my stance, but to actually soften and be receptive and to realize we can take a deeper breath, soften the body, receive something. Sometimes in that mode, there's a freedom and there's an opening. Something else can happen. Some other thing that we never even thought could come into our lives can happen. When we're not so busy controlling it all from that grasping place. As the great saint uh, Srina Sagadatta says, reality comes in the form of the unexpected. We don't really know what reality is because we're so expecting what we think should happen all the time. So, you know, the renunciation is in subtly is also to begin to have an open mind or that Zen beginner's mind or showing up without a strategy or an agenda. It's not to say we can't apply strategy or contemplate strategy. It's going to be very, very useful, but it can be more creative and dynamic when it isn't stuck in a repeating kind of control mechanism, but has a fluidity to it. And you say, oh, I can just, yeah, that was a great idea, but can I just let go and create some more space? Maybe something else, maybe something else that someone else will bring in. And so we start to heal the wisdom of the field or some other kind of harmonic in the dynamic that's unfolding that we haven't heard before because we're just hearing a monotone sound of our, our way. So this, this is a, this, this a training. In my monastic life, we would chant every day, um, I am of the nature to age, I am of the nature to sicken, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is beloved and pleasing to me will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And that can sound a bit macabre, like, oh, you know, you poor things that you had to chant that every day. (laughs) You know, what about love and bliss and peace, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it, you know there is a part of the Theravada monasticism is a bit like that. It's sort of heavy going, but it is a it is actually a very um, a very calming contemplation to actually realise and to hold that as Ajahn Chah would say. You know, think about death often. You know, it's it's unpredictable, not only our own death but our loved ones. You know, we have the idea that everyone will live a certain lifespan and then we'll just drift off nicely on our deathbed and, you know, have uh, someone reading us the Tibetan Book of the Dying or something as we go and, you know, off we float very beautifully. But, you know, death can be, come in many forms and very unexpectedly and is very, very painful sometimes and brings with it a great sense of tearing and loss. 
but it's Ajahn Chah would say, well, it's like a mango tree. He always bought his images from nature. He was very simple like that. He said some mangoes ripen on that tree and then they fall and they're very ripe. And some get blown by the wind and some get cut down before they're ripe. You know, it's like, you know, every mango has its own span of how long it's going to be on that tree and when it falls. And you think, oh, that poor mango, it fell, you know, but it had its own time. And it fell and it went, goes back as we all go back into the ground, into nature. Everything that arises dissolves back into the undying awareness, the undying heart. There is that which is amara, amata, the amata dharma, the deathless dharma, that which isn't bound by death. And we can know that and touch that and be that with each other beyond the shapes and the forms that we live through and are in. So this nekama, this renunciation, this relinquishment also has this sense of understanding that um, impermanence, that nothing is ultimately graspable. It doesn't mean to say we don't hold things. Some things we hold for a long time. You know, a parent holds a child for the length of time that is needed. If we have a project, we hold that, or a business, or a household, or a relationship. Or, you know, those that are holding spirit rock, I mean, that's a big holding for a long time. You know, but we can hold things without the stress and the grasping that comes with that extra um, attachment and fear. And so how can we can do that? That's the practice. You know, if we don't actually practice, then we just go into that kind of clinching mode. And then we generate a lot of stress and, and anxiety and, um, you know, don't get in my way and those kinds of dynamics. So we can hold, but we can hold with a letting go. You know, and that's a nice place to explore that. And it's a very interesting exploration. So this dispassion, this nibida, this, uh, this is taught a lot again in a you know in a monastic theme. This as we seem to be in that, or I'm in that tonight. It was introduced. So it's actually a long time since I left the monastery, so I've had a lot of practice in the hurly burly of everything else. Not that monasteries aren't hurly burly. There's a lot of difficult stuff that goes down in monasteries, but this uh, this word nibida means to to have a sense of dispassion, a sense of um, you know, when I first met, one of the first times I met Ajahn Chah, I was very young and uh, I was in the UK and he came and visited a community. I was living in a meditation community. We were um, practicing a Burmese type of practice and we were hosting retreats and organizing them. And he came to the community I was in and, and uh, we sat together around a table. I didn't know that he was such a great master at that time, although I certainly felt it, and I certainly felt his free, feeling of freedom that he had, it was pretty tangible to me, and um, he just looked around the table, and he was quite amused uh, looking at us, and he just didn't tie Buomai, 
which means something like, have you had enough yet? (laughs) And uh, he really meant, like, have you had enough? You know, how much do you need? You know, how much experience, how much stuff, you know, before you turn the mind around, turn it on its journey home. And I kind of got it, even though, you know, I clearly am a slow learner because I still feel I don't have enough sometimes. And uh, keep, you know, on that track. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's that's nibida. It's that feeling, that, that disenchantment, not being so enchanted, so sort of, you know, elated when it's all going well and devastated. Uh, you know, there's a lot of devastation happening now because there's so much being destroyed and it is extremely painful to feel the impact of what's happening on our planetary and, you know, through all the political and the plundering um, kind of um, devastation of, 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 of nature and the environment and systems that are there to help um, generate a sense of well-being and compassionate you know um, policies that are being stripped away and you know what I'm talking about so I don't want to belabor the point but and and it is important to feel what we feel but it's also important not to completely get lost in despair and disillusionment um, but to understand this is the nature of the world. And this is the nature of the, 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 what is projected, not the nature of nature, but what is projected from the human mind. The, until we resolve within our minds this force of greed, hatred, and delusion, this is the nature of what has always been experienced and will be experienced. So we work to do what we can to respond, but can we do what we do with this heart of nibida, not having to get go so high and then so low, but this equanimity, this dispassion, niroda, which is nibbana, these words that uh, have a very profound meaning in Pali. They're not really the kinds of words we use a lot in our society, which is more like, you know, get more, become more, be more, you know, uh, successful, powerful, um, and so on. These are very different feelings. Nibida, disenchantment. Niroda, which means cessation, dispassion, allowing things to cease. Not having to keep creating stuff but allowing there to be a feeling of cessation, of space, of gaps. The literally means, niroda means to live without, ni is not, roda is like a prison or wall, without, not to be in the walls of the mind, actually. The heart suture, to leap beyond the walls of the mind, there is a whole other way of being here. Nibbana, cooling, the cooling of the passions, that are always seeking, always running. Peace, peace, deep peace. As, uh, as the Buddha said, this is peaceful, Nibbana, this is peaceful. This is excellent. Namely, the stilling of Sankara, 
the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the severing of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. This is the heart of the fruit, the realization. This is peaceful. This is excellent. There's nothing more excellent, namely the stilling of sankhara. Sankhara, the patternings, the narratives, the uh, shapes that we find ourselves in, being born into, the, the dying out of, and uh, being recreated in again and again. And uh, how endless that is. How it's associated with this feeling of dukkha, of stress. That subtle stress of, of fear of, of non-becoming something not being something, not being light, not being seen. The stilling of that, the calming of that. And there's something like, I don't really want that. I want, you know, I, 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 want, to, uh, I want to suffer <laughs> because I'm not alive if I don't really feel anguished. You know, I don't, not getting somewhere and getting, getting something, getting on with it. You know, and it's very frightening us for us to actually allow ourselves to kind of collapse Allow ourselves, you know, when we're in those places, when, which we all feel, when we're not, when it's, we can't fix things, and it's not going how we want it to be, and we feel down maybe, and we, you know, we don't feel like we're succeeding. And we can get very, um, you know, it can really feel like uh, devastating without realizing this is a doorway in a way. This is a deep doorway into actually allowing ourselves to just rest and trust something else. So where does this take us? Because in some ways this deep relinquishment is taking us into a a deeper dimension of being. It's taking us in, it's it's inviting us to trust something else. It's inviting us to trust a refuge, a refuge. There is a refuge beyond the maddening crowd, (laughs) beyond the ups and downs. And within the ups and downs, there is the stilling of sankhara. There is that which is still unbound, unconditioned. If it wasn't for that, there would be no peace. There is the ability to practice the relinquishment of acquisition. I think that's a good practice. I, I do that often because I, I get so caught up, like all of us, in the acquiring mind and so anxious about what happens if this, you know, what I've put together is lost. And, you know, that's the world we live in nowadays. We had these terrible fires here when in a, in a night, you know, all that can be acquired can be lost. You know, these forces of nature now, this turbulent world, this unpredictable world. So we have to find a, a ground that we can trust, this heart. You know, we, we go in the pathways of the mind and try and find stability there, but actually, ultimately, they are the places of uncertainty, the labyrinth of the mind, the thought forms, the, the acquisitions, the and there's nothing wrong with acquiring things. I think it's actually quite, you know, the Buddha encouraged succeed if you're going to succeed succeed but just don't build your house there fully because it will change 
Or if you do succeed, share it on, you know, it's great. But where, where do we find the ground of our heart? You know, this, it is the heart, this listening heart that's always here. We don't really pay attention to it because it doesn't really seem that real to us. What we see, what we think, what we observe, what we hold on to, what we've acquired is so much more real, so much more solid. It's a bit like we're in the movie theater and we're sitting there and we get very involved in the film. We're in the movie, we're crying, we're weeping, we're, we're, we're sort of going with that character and we hate that one. We want to be with the hero, we don't like the evil guy. And, uh, you know, and, and yet, you know, and that's what life is like. It's a bit like that. So it's like a, this movie we're in. It's very, very compelling for us. The dramas, and if, you, if you've noticed at the centre of the movie, there's a me, you know, there's the central character is always me, <laughs> in, in some form or shape, in this very complex movie, with all these different characters that are playing out their different roles, and me in relationship to them. And in meditation, like we were doing tonight, we start to slow it down, the stilling of Sankara, we're slowing it down. And we're seeing what's actually happening here, this thought form and this narrative. And this, we see there's a feeling tone. This feeling is very powerful. And we start to look and that feeling, that feeling is like, this. and then we look and we explore and we realize it's vibration and it's moving and it's opening. And actually what felt so constricted starts to energetically open and it's freer. And it's space and it's energy and it's moving. And in the same way, if we look at the, if we slow down those movie frames, we start to see its light and its sound and its movement. And actually, if we look behind and see what's projecting the whole thing, it's a, it's, you know, there's a, there's a film going, but then there's a light that's projecting the film and projecting it onto a screen. And that's the movie. So in some ways, that stilling, and calming is a bit like we're stepping back. We're stepping back from the movie so much and we start to see its shapes, its forms. This is the meditative journey. I'm not suggesting that when we're driving down Highway 101 that I think we should keep our foot on the accelerator and not try and still and calm down and just say it's just a movie frame. It's a very real consequences when we're, you know, this is just a you know, different realm, that we're in the meditative realm, the altered realm that we move into is stilling and stepping back and then we see that we see there's just these frames and then we see that what's generating this is the light of consciousness the light of awareness the light of presence but we don't really make see it as real we think the movie is so real you know that's what's real but we don't realize actually what's projecting through the mind the sankara the patterning of the mind Actually, underneath or behind that is just this light of awareness. And that light is this uh, buddhic knowing, knowing, the knowing that's always present. It just is the most real. We say it's not that real, everything else is real. But in this journey of stilling, relinquishment, it's actually inducting us and taking us home into the ground of our being, the ground of the aware present knowing heart just here it's now it can taste the peace of the unconstructed 
the unborn, the unoriginated, the undying. This is Ajahn Chah. Do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. Of course, you know, it doesn't mean the world comes to an end or our response within the world comes to the end, but the struggle that we have can come to an end with this practice, these moments of path activity, moments of training attention to be here, being with the body, with the breath, with sensation, contemplating what's happening now. The movie frames, slowing them, stilling them. Releasing out of their constriction. And noticing in that release there is another dimension here. That which is being, awareness, knowing, heart. It's actually extremely familiar. The most familiar, the most intimate. Always here, always now, whether we're being born, whether we're dying, where all things are being born, where all things are dying, that heart remains. Peace remains. Knowing remains. There is that, said the Buddha, which is unborn, unoriginated, undying, and that we can know directly here and now. And in its knowing, there is peace, deep peace. I have a lot of gratitude to Ajahn Chah and that lineage of the Forest School. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, who's my teacher in the UK, and the many masters that uh, carried this teaching and embodied this realization. Ajahn Chah embodied this realization and wasted no time to transmit it. And uh, Make sure you that um, he he was you know he would say that you can do this. He would impart courage. Don't you know when when he was asked how how did you get to where you were? How were you you know this great master? He said, "I dare to do. <laughs> you can dare to do. We can do this. You know this is not something outside of the realm of what we can 
realize for ourselves. So let us um, take courage, and it's a difficult world that we live in at the moment. Great challenge. Um, great challenges that we all will meet and all have met, and yet within the within the midst of that, to maintain this well-being so, um, that is available through, to us through the recognition of this deepening into a peaceful um, equanimity, serenity. It is our possible even within the most extreme experience. So let's take heart, take faith in that and to practice so it becomes more real for us in our everyday moments. So please if um, any of you have anything you would like to say or any questions we have about 10 minutes before we wrap up this evening there's Mics floating around. Please feel free. Uh, you, you you talked about letting go and letting be. Um, I find there's a big difference and I'd be curious to hear your take on that. I think you're right. Yeah. And I think both have value but they have a different feeling about them. The letting be is um, easier <laughs> because it's such an immediate sense of you know, just let it be, you know, just, it's very connected with the metta, with a deep sense of, I mean, the metta, the Sanskrit word metri, it means to soften, and at its core, it's a place in our being where we let everything be as it is, and, you know, there's a part of us that cannot stand so much, and quite rightly so. You know, we are so righteous and so upset. But what are we going to do? I mean, we're, I, you know, we should do something actually about many things. I'm not saying it's an abdication of responsibility, but where do we move from when we act? And there's a way of letting be takes us into such a deep place of listening and allowing and reading it's like reading it's instead of reading through our preferences and views and biases we're reading we're allowed we it takes us to we're reading the field in a deeper way so we're hearing an intuitive you know we're like we're hearing a deeper intelligence um, that's coming through all different channels not just the ones we prefer and then, you know, we discern and make sense of that. And then that can inform our response. Um, and then that's, 
You know, when we say let go, let be, it's like we're letting go into the the living dharma. It's another way that the Ajahn Chah talked about the unconditioned as the it's not it's not just an empty void, vacuous void. It's a living prajna paramita. It's like a living intelligence that if that is arising and informs the heart, and we experience that as like an intuitive quantum understanding. So the letting be and the letting go is a is the route or the route into that. Seems that letting go often is uh, pushing something away. Sure, like yeah. In the way, yeah. So I have a problem with letting go. Yeah. And yeah, no, you're right. It's um, I think a lot of what we call letting go is aversion or tinge with aversion, and that that's a sort of premature transcendent syndrome where we we haven't really deeply resolved our aversion to so much. So I'm just letting go of all this stuff, you know. Basically, we're saying I can't stand it and I hate it. And, you know, that's understandable. But it's not the deeper maturity that we're growing into. It's not the place where we are actually finished with something. We've really seen it. We've really cooked through it. And so we don't even have to let go because we haven't grasped it in the first place. But so, you know, that, that is the problem in that, word, in that way of talking and uh, is that it does have this aversion in it and um, but on the other hand sometimes we have to let go you know because there's stuff we're stuck to so um, we we can use the aversion and distill that into strength of will you know like I need to actually just put this to one side so that so it's the, the letting be is more the yin you know and the, and there is a place for a yang energy but it doesn't have to come from will and aversion and dismissal. It can come from strength and clarity. No. Like, um, there has to be sometimes a strong no, internally and externally, to protect certain things and to, um, because, uh, you know, well, we know why, but, yeah, so, yeah. But language is powerful, how it lands. And generally speaking, because we're in such a willful culture and yang culture that's always kind of improving things and controlling things and pushing, the letting be is a better skillful means in terms of languaging and to counterbalance that tendency, I think, of let be, just let it be, you know, soften, soften the body, soften that kind of yin. We need more yin to balance the, the willful um, push of the yang. But thank you for that distinction. Um, I, to speak to the letting go question, um, I recently heard a Zen teacher um, reframe letting go as establishing intimacy. As what? Establishing intimacy. Establishing? Intimacy. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah, like, versus um, letting go of something, inviting it into us. Beautiful. And coming as close to it as we can. Um, Yeah, the Zen guys, you know, they got it down. They really do. (laughs) 
Um, I do have a question, though. Um, sometimes I feel like when I start interacting with somebody, um, I am pulled out of present attention, and I fall back into habits of uh, embarrassment and defensiveness, and you know. I know. <laughs> Don't we all? It's yeah. um, that's the practice. You know, we 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 sort of fall a million times. And we get caught a million times. But there'll be one time when we don't. And that's the important. Our relationship to the experience of getting caught up is what's important. We're going to get caught up, but how can we start to, you know, like, how do we, like, um, another forest master, Jan Tate, said, you know, four things to remember. To return more quickly was one of them. You know, to not get so lost for so long. You know, that's why the daily practices help. You know, but to bring them in, you know, returning to the body, to the breath, to feeling when... Because the body is very interesting because when we get caught, you'll feel it in the body. As you get more and more attuned, you can feel that kind of... It's tightening and the investment in... And then, and then that's the moment. So, can you literally soften the body? Can you soften the jaw? Can you soften the belly? Can you take a deeper breath? You know. So, taking deep breaths is really helpful. Actually, You're deepening the breath, filling the body with breath, just leaning back, listening. Those sort of count. Noticing what our pattern is. When you know, what, where do we get caught? What, you know, really investigating. And I love this Dhamma Vijaya to investigate, investigate what's happening and to contemplate afterwards how was that when I got caught and you know it's, it's, there's so much to learn in that rather than just feeling oh I just got caught and I want to get back to this other place it's like that edge like I, this is an opportunity to really learn about this mechanism and so that's um, and the other thing Ajahn Tate said is uh, to um, to learn to differentiate between mind and the activity of the mind so you see there's the activity but then there's the space of knowing. The knowing, the awareness, is happening within this field of awareness. They're not ultimately two different. You know, they're, you know, they're, within a, a, they're within a complete whole, but there, are, there is a difference between the activity of the mind and mind itself. And so we can see that in, when we're in relationship and engaged. We can explore that. The activity, the sounds, the conversation, and yet there is this space of awareness. And so that's a helpful theme to orientate around. And can I notice, you know, sometimes, like, you know, softening the gaze and noticing space, noticing sound within the, especially when we get caught up, there's a lot of investment. And notice with this silence and space so that we. Noticing a like as phenomena as, as um, sound is to silence and form is to space, so phenomena is to awareness. So we can notice that there's a background. So noticing the background when we're caught is a practice. It's very helpful, very in terms of unhooking us. Yeah.
Oh, sorry, I didn't. Uh, now you can hear me. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, first off, thank you for sharing. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. And just a quick, really simple question at sure. the very beginning of what you were sharing. You shared a quote, and I was just curious if you could share with us its author and maybe it one more time. It was referencing happiness as a dream. Now that's Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche. Thank you. Let's finish with that and a sharing of blessings tonight. Dilgo Kiense um, was one another great master um, who is, I think, reincarnated now. It's kind of sort of as a mini Dilgo Kiense. Um, I, I knew him more in his older, previous form, and um, he was another one of these great beings of that same era as Ajahn Chah. And, um, I, you know, it's funny, a story just flicked into my mind about Diogo Kiense, um, these masters. Um, we had a friend that lived next door to the monastery who was actually um, quite a well-known actress in her day. Her name was Sarah Miles, and her husband was Robert Bolt, who was a well-known playwright. Some of you might be from that era and remember them, him, particularly... Um, yeah, so 1967, Robert Bolt wrote um, things like um, The Mission and um, Lawrence of Arabia and uh, Dr. Shivago, those kind of classics, that era. Anyway, they had, the, they had uh, the monastery that I spent a lot of time training in in Chithurst in West Sussex in England. Um, it was a little hamlet and um, just next to us was the old manor house where they lived, and next door to that was the was the church that went back centuries. It was built obviously on a on a pre pre Christian site, and they had a well there that was very ancient in the Doomsday Book. So we used to go a lot there on um, alms round and spend time with them. But they had this um, amazing sort of. Um, Room that went that was glass and and uh, beautiful that stretched out into these beautiful gardens they had and then and Sarah, who was um, a big devotee of Dilgo Kiense, had a shrine with all sorts of saints and sages and and she had a cardboard picture of Dilgo Kiense in the shrine. Anyway, one day um, when they were out, they they she had all these candles lit. The wind came through. And the curtains caught in the candles, and the whole this whole amazing um, conservatory place burnt down, except this picture of Dilgo Kiense, which was made of cardboard. So um, such is the way of the masters. I see a lot more mystery than we give credit for. Okay, so. Uh, let's uh, hear from him as we finish tonight. <clears throat> Maintain the state of simplicity. If you encounter happiness, success, prosperity, or other favorable circumstances, consider them as dreams, illusions, and do not get attached to them. If you are stricken, by illness, deprivation, loss, or other physical and mental trials. Do not let yourself be discouraged, 
but we kindle your compassion and generate the wish that through your suffering, that the suffering of others may be exhausted. Whatever circumstances arise, do not plunge into either elation or misery, but stay free and comfortable in unshakable serenity. May we share the benefits of our practice tonight for the welfare of each of us here. May we stay well, may our hearts know peace. And for our families and friends, may they be well and may their hearts know peace. For the beings that come through Spirit Rock and who have been on this land now and in the past and those in the future. To all beings surrounding us in the local towns and cities, this state, across this country. May all beings here be well. May their hearts be touched by peace. And all beings everywhere, wherever they dwell, in whatever lands, deep within the ocean, in the high mountains, in the forests and the streams. All beings everywhere, may we send love, gratitude, peace. May all beings be well. May they be free from harm and may they be freed from suffering. Om Mani Padme Hum. Good night everyone and uh, go well and stay well and uh, hope to see you again.